and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 97, recorded on March 17th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you. And holy smokes, do we have so many stories to get into today. Let's start off with some great news for GNOME users. Version 3.32 is released, and it's a big one. And you've been running this for a while, haven't you? So have you been taking advantage of the fractional scaling? I have been for weeks, and it has been getting incrementally better and better and better as the beta goes on. So that new fractional scaling is like the huge feature. And this has been like three years in the work. Started uh, years ago at Canonical, kind of got set aside for a little bit, and it's finally all come together with the Upstream GNOME project, and it's neat. So fractional scaling is a feature that allows everything on the screen to fractionally scale up for high DPI monitors. This is super nice if maybe you want a little more real estate on your high DPI screen and has some great accessibility possibilities as well. But right now, uh, it's only an experimental feature. So to enable fractional scaling in GNOME 3.32, you have to be using Wayland, which I am, and you have to run a specific command on the command line, which we'll have linked in the show notes. But if you do these two things, you get this option. It just sort of shows up in the GNOME settings. And it is neat. I played around with it on my ThinkPad, which even though it's a 1080p screen, I was still able to turn this on and play with it. It's it fun. And I was wondering, I didn't see an option in the UI, but maybe somebody in the audience knows. I'd love to go the other way. So you have increments of like 100%, 125%, 150%, etc., I want to go the other way. I want to scale down to 80%. That's something you could do in Unity 7, so you could get even more real estate on a small screen. If anybody out there knows a way to do that with this new fractional scaling, let me know. LinuxActionNews.com slash contact. One of the real headlines for this release are the performance improvements, though. Presumably you've noticed that then. They are noticeable. And I think that's noteworthy right there. A lot of times you'll see like performance improvements as one of the uh, you know line items uh, as a new feature for a new release. But these are actually perceptible improvements in the performance of the UI. And so do you think this is going to be enough to tempt you back over to GNOME from Plasma? When you combine the performance improvements, the stability improvements, the high DPI, fractional scaling, the way they've reorganized the settings menu, which looks slick, the new updates to GNOME software, and the update to boxes, which makes accessing your GPU via a virtual machine much easier, it's very, very hard to say no. Uh, I, like I said, I've been running it on my ThinkPad now for a few weeks, and there's just no way I'm taking it off at this point. If you have had issues with GNOME, like I, I'm on the record, GNOME and I have been on a break for a little while. I've been seeing Plasma for, for about a year. Yeah. But this GNOME 3.32 is a really good looking release. And right now, I mean, I don't know where this is going, but I'm excited and we're hitting it off. I'll just put it that way. How did you install it then? What distro is it on top of? I've tried it out on Rawhide, but the one that I ended up going with for my daily driver is actually Ubuntu 19.04. Because from what I can tell, looking at the whole GNOME landscape right now, it appears there's a couple of more performance and stability fixes in Canonical's version that they're going to vendor patch that just haven't quite been accepted upstream yet. It, like most of it's upstream, but not quite all of it has been accepted yet. And so some of those, I believe, will ship as vendor patches in 1904. This is all kind of up in the air right now, but I ended up landing on Ubuntu 1904. That said, the Rawhide implementation, also same great performance improvements, really looks good too. 
Well, I'm afraid I'm not tempted to switch away from XFCE just yet. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> no, no surprise <laughs> to that, actually. And I don't blame you. If you're not already um, a GNOME user or a big fan of the general workflow of GNOME, this isn't going to win you over. If you've tried out GNOME in the past and GNOME, as some like to call it, if GNOME Shell was a good fit workflow-wise for you, but other things prevented you from using it, like myself, I think that's where it's definitely worth a relook in this new version. And maybe go grab OpenSUSE Tumbleweed or uh, try out the 1904 dailies and just see if you can notice the improvements. Doesn't cost much. Well, you've actually got me tempted to try it now, so I think I will. I can't see me switching to it, but I think it's worth a go. So something you covered on LUP last week was this Debian situation and there have been some developments. Right. At the beginning of the week, it looked like no one wanted to run the Debian project. They were going to be leaderless, Joe. <laughs> yeah. And then one person stepped forward, and then another person, and another person, and now there's five people running for election. Well, nature abhors a vacuum, Joe. So it's, by the time people are listening to this, there could be another five that have stepped forward. <laughs> yeah. But it's good, though, isn't it? Because we thought that no one was going to step forward and it looked like it was just going to keep rolling on and on and on each week. They'd just keep it open for people to come forward. And I think really it was a case of no one wanted to be the only one standing in the election because that's just a bit weird. And then when one person came forward, that sort of opened the floodgates. So maybe the project isn't quite in the trouble that some people were speculating that it is. It seemed a bit overblown to me. The um, this idea of them having really old tooling and everything. I mean, okay, yeah, it's not the most modern of distros, but it's been working pretty well for all these years. And their governance model is very solid. And I, I just can't see huge problems, really. I think I'm somewhere in the middle in that argument. I can accept that the tooling, like their bug tracking system, for one, and the way they deploy packages and maybe the way the release cadences are set, like those areas seem like they could use some retooling. But the fundamental governance model does seem sound. And with the right intentions and the right people, the tooling issues can be resolved. So it, it's not like, yeah, the sky isn't falling here. But I think it's worth recognizing that as a project that's been around for a very, very long time, and they're one of the grandfather Linux distributions, um, it makes sense there could be some tools that need to be improved. And the motivation for that isn't to be hip, isn't isn't to follow trends, isn't to put everything on GitHub or whatever people might assume. It's simply just to draw in new contributors, new ideas to the project to keep it healthy. Yeah, that's true, I suppose. You do need to keep the new blood coming in, don't you? So maybe, hopefully, whoever wins this will have some influence. I mean, I know it's kind of, it's mostly a advocacy role, really, isn't it? Going around to conferences and things, but hopefully they can have some influence and make it modernize a little bit maybe what they need is like a, a really good foundation joe you know maybe something the linux foundation could put together for a foundation inside a foundation that would cover the debian foundation <laughs> yeah because the linux foundation definitely needs more sub foundations don't they and this week how many did they announce i've honestly lost count you know, it seems like that's a question that should be easy to answer, but it's not, especially this week. I th the number could be somewhere between two and five. It just sort of depends on how you do this math. So we've got the merger of a couple of foundations into the OpenJS Foundation this week. Then you've also got the launch of the Continuous Delivery Foundation, 
this week. Also, the announcement of the Chips Alliance, which is kind of actually like a foundation. And then on top of all of that, you've got the new Red Team Project, which in a lot of ways operates like a foundation. And then to top it all off, you've got the new Community Bridge platform, which is sort of enabling projects to create foundations on demand. I don't know how many that is, Joe. Yeah, it's like I said, too many to count. By the way, I didn't even mention the GraphQL Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> they just love their bureaucracy, don't they? The Linux Foundation, for some reason. It's foundations all the way down, Joe. Foundations for days, yeah. I don't really know how to sort this. I, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. It's almost too much to really conceptualize at once. I just kind of want to remind some of us about the fundamentals. The Linux Foundation is not a charity organization. It is a trade association, which is designed to serve the common business interests of its paid members, like Microsoft and VMware and others, who control its board of directors. So it's not, that's not bad or good necessarily. It's just a reminder that the Linux Foundation itself is not a charity. It's not, uh, if you give them money, it's not a tax write off. It is a trade association. And perhaps, um, having foundations for days, um, helps build that organization. I, I imagine there's a obvious and clear reason why we need this many foundations. I just don't know what it is. Yeah, there's got to be a reason. But the Node.js and JS foundations merging. That's been in the works for quite some time. We covered that back on Linux Action News 74 which was back in October, so five, six months ago. So it goes to show that these things do take a bit of time to work themselves out. Yeah, you're dealing with 30 different companies involved with that particular one, like Google, Microsoft, IBM, PayPal, GoDaddy, Joyent. There's even more. Like There's 30 of them that are involved with this. So it takes time, I would imagine, to get alignment from all of them. But each of them released different press statements saying, well, we support the JavaScript ecosystem and we support the merger of these foundations. It's all interesting, but can I tell you the one that the one that really jumps out at me out of all of the recent Linux Foundation announcements is this community bridge platform. This is interesting. Yeah, it's sort of almost like Patreon Plus, isn't it? It's kind of got the Patreon aspects to it. It's got some community management aspects to it. It's a pretty big deal. Yeah, they pitch it as a platform they're going to add features to over time. And it got its initial big commercial funding already. From GitHub, they've contributed $100,000 to this initiative. And when you look at the Community Bridge platform, they say it's about funding, security, and people. So transparently raise and spend your money as a project. They say they'll provide transparency into potential vulnerabilities and fixes, i.e. they will scan your code repositories for vulnerabilities <laughs> and apparently make that public. And they say they're going to enable easy connections for mentors and prospects, people that want to be mentees, etc. I looked into it a little bit, and what it is is a closed-source platform for open-source projects to manage some of the aspects of being a large project. But it's not everything. You're still going to need lawyers. You're still going to need people to take care of stuff that aren't your core responsibilities. And I have to say, Joe, it is a damn tragedy. And I don't use that lightly, that this community bridge platform is not open source. I believe this is something the Linux Foundation must have been working on for a while, or whoever they acquired it from has been. It has a lot of focus around 
mentorships and mentees, which I think is very important. And it has all of these elements about collecting money and tracking how a project spends its money and making that transparently available to the community. It is something that is more appropriate for open source projects than, say, Patreon. But the fact that it's closed source is such a shame because this is something that could uniquely be beneficial to the open source community. It could be adopted by groups like the Software Conservancy that they could extend this platform. It could be adopted by projects like Debian directly. It is a missed opportunity to truly give back to the open source community by locking this down as a proprietary platform. You have to figure that their reasoning is that it would become too fragmented if they made it open source. Because if everyone could run their own instance of it, then you wouldn't know where to go necessarily to find the projects that you're looking for. Whereas if it's all centralized, then that's much more convenient for people. But that's a bit of a weak argument given that it's all based on open source projects. And therefore, it's just almost a no-brainer. You just expect it to be released under an open source license rather than just locked down. This is my opinion, but just watching the Linux Foundation over the last few years and all of these foundations that they're launching, bringing all these companies on board, and now the launch of this community bridge initiative, what I see as a common thread here is the Linux Foundation wants to own all of this. They want to be the umbrella organization for the entire open source community. That is poison. That's that's toxic to an open source community. It's evolutionary nature is its is its very strength and the centralization of power would be very very damaging but i think this is what we're seeing here and i don't i don't think it's about fragmentation i think it's about control and power and that's why it's a hosted platform that they control and uh if they want to prove me wrong go ahead and open source it linux foundation have at it well if they did open source this then organizations like mozilla would be able to run an instance and obviously people would be able to run their own and I think that there are a lot of people who would prefer to go with someone like Mozilla rather than the Linux Foundation, which is a trade body, as he said. And it's not a foundation that is furthering the public good. It's there to further the interests of its members, which is totally fine. But some people are just not going to be comfortable with that. I think the uh, Software Conservancy said it pretty well, although it is a bit aggressive. They are not an unbiased party in this matter. But that said, they write at the end of their blog post, which we'll have linked in the notes, the new Linux Foundation system is probably just right for free and open source projects that A, prefer to use a single point of failure, proprietary software, and B, do not want to operate in a way that is dedicated to the public good, and C, have minimal fiscal sponsorship needs such as occasional reimbursement of project expenses. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a serious burn. That's so great. They obviously, um, again, are biased in this area, but I, I can't help but completely see their point of view on this. It, this, in a really sad way, is no more free and no better for the open source community than just everybody using Patreon. The only difference here is they're taking care of some additional administrative responsibilities, but not enough. Like the projects will still have to form their own corporate organization in most countries. They'll still have to have legal counsel in most countries. Like it's not a full, complete package. I appreciate this is new, but it's off to a bumpy start, in my opinion. And also, the fact that the Linux Foundation is a little tone deaf to this particular issue is concerning as well. 
because it it only furthers that narrative that they're serving at the will of the major corporations. And and one one really surefire way to combat that narrative would be to actually empathize with the community's needs and deliver something that the community would respond positively to that would indicate you're listening. And every time you make an action that seems to indicate you're not listening, you're furthering a narrative you probably don't want furthered. And either they're unaware of that or they just don't care. And either one of those two things is extremely unfortunate and a shame coming from the Linux Foundation. Even if they did open source, it would feel like somewhat duplicated effort, given that we have LibrePay as a platform already that is completely open source. And so you'd think that maybe they should have built on top of that and sort of given back to the community rather than spending a bunch of money on something that only they can use. Yeah, it would be at least a decent starting point, and maybe they could work with the Linux Foundation. Okay, well, Reaction's been a little more positive to the big news for Nginx this week. Yeah, Nginx has been acquired by F5 Networks for $670 million. That seems a lot for a web server company to me. Does it, though? I mean, by, by even kind of moderate estimations, there's over 374 million sites using Nginx. 67% of the highest traffic sites on the internet use Nginx. But more than that, it's used as an accelerator in and even like a traffic cop in so many network configurations, it's it's become the the little engine that could. I I feel like it's it's worth a lot more than this, but you know maybe I just compare everything to the price of Instagram. Yeah, or Red Hat maybe. Well, you only have to look at F five stock price and how that dipped once this was announced to tell you that evidently Nginx is not really that valuable in terms of revenue not compared to something like Red Hat, which is obviously a revenue-generating juggernaut. Yeah, Nginx is really a problem solver that you just install quietly, and it takes care of things. In a lot of ways, that's also what a lot of F5's network equipment does. There is some actual, um, what, what, what do they call it? Um, synergy? Corporate synergy? Yeah, <laughs> there's some corporate synergy. <laughs> well, really, this looks like a play by F5 to modernize and acquire a company that's making something that is very much relevant technologically, unlike F5, which is seemingly becoming less and less relevant as it ages. So again, there's something of a parallel with the Red Hat and IBM acquisition. Yeah, perhaps. And I wonder if maybe F5 was losing some market share to people installing Nginx boxes, in some cases doing what F5's boxes would have done in the past. So you could see how they could pretty easily tie this in with their product line, and they say in the announcement that they're keeping everything open source. This isn't going away. They're not going to like change the brand name, things like that. They're keeping the brand. They're keeping it open source. The core project remains as is. And I think that alleviates some of our fears. Well, I think there are plenty of people whose fears haven't been allayed. But I just don't think it makes sense for companies to buy open source projects and then try and close them down. Because the license just doesn't let you do that. Okay, they can close down future development. But you're only going to get a fork appearing, a community fork or even a company coming along and making a fork of it. So it, uh, it seems very unlikely that this is bad news to me. Yeah, and you just lose so much value if you do something like that, not to mention the cost of the loss of community. It, it, it's, it would be insane. It would be such a waste of money. Well, a prime example of a bit of software being forked happened this week when Amazon launched Open Distro for Elasticsearch. Oh, Elasticsearch. So for those of you that uh, don't follow this stuff super closely, think of it as a distributed document-oriented search 
It gives you analytics with a whole engine wrapped around that. It supports structured and unstructured queries, and it doesn't require a schema to be defined ahead of time, which not only makes it super easy for end users, but also for developers to get a bunch of information like about analytics from web logs. And um, it originally launched as an open source project, and Amazon loved it, scooped it up, and made their own product out of that. Now, there has been some conflict between the Upstream project and Amazon over the years. There are certain things that Amazon wanted contributed to the main open source project, not just the core, and the Upstream group didn't necessarily agree with that. And so now they've got this open distribution, they're calling it, for Elasticsearch, which um, the the term for distribution seems to be loose these days. It's it's either a series of RPMs or a Docker image that you can download. Um I guess that's a distribution. <laughs> they're distributing it. <laughs> but they write on their blog, they, they're going for the high ground on their blog. And, and it feels like it's a, it's a reference to the stuff that we've seen recently with MongoDB and other license changes. They write, quote, We are seeing other examples where open source maintainers are muddying the waters between the open source community and the proprietary code they create to monetize open source. At AWS, we believe that maintainers of open source projects have a responsibility to ensure the primary open source distribution remains open and free of proprietary code so that the community can build on the project freely and the distribution does not advantage any other company over another. This was part of the promise the maintainer made when they gained the developer's trust to adopt the software. Doesn't that sound like they're taking a bit of a moral high ground here? Well, they're certainly trying, aren't they? But um, it's a complicated one, isn't it? Because Amazon is making all this money from free and open source software. And so it's in their interests for it to be freely available for them to use and make money. Meanwhile, they're not really contributing much back to a lot of the stuff. And that's why we've seen with Redis Labs and MongoDB, them changing the license to make it proprietary to stop Amazon making money. Amazon says it creates uncertainty about the longevity of open source projects with their customers. They say customers also want their freedom to run the software anywhere and self-support at any point in time. And Amazon wants to help them do that, especially the run it anywhere part. That's why they've decided to partner with Expedia and Netflix to create a new open source distribution of Elasticsearch. So now Amazon is taking this Apache license Elastic project, adding in their own stuff, and uh, shipping it as their own version now. Yeah, and effectively competing with the proprietary version because they're talking about putting these features in that Elastic are charging for. Right, and everything that Amazon says in the core version that they're releasing is going to be Apache 2.0 license, which includes, like you said, components that compete with the commercial version of Elasticsearch. That's aggressive. <laughs> and I, I went and checked it out, and it is really easy to get going. Like, it has nice UIs. It uses some projects that people are familiar with to get clear, simple metrics set up. It's competitive. But it's yet another example of how the open core business model is just not really working anymore. Because who is going to pay for these proprietary add ons if there's an open source version that's equivalent in terms of features? Yeah, and the fact that the upstream maintainer is Amazon in association with Expedia and Netflix, um, that just adds some credibility to the project. And if I was a CTO or a CIO looking at uh, implementing something on a large scale in my company, uh, um, that would grab my attention. I, 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 
I wouldn't be beyond that. That's notable that that's something Amazon's maintaining and it would figure they're maintaining it because they run it on their own system. So they have a long-term business interest in keeping it competitive. I can't help but feel a little sad for the open source projects where this is happening to. At the same time, in each case, you can point at examples where they messed with their license or they blurred the lines between what was open source and what was commercial. And it has led to this. Of course, you can't expect these projects to be perfect and everybody's learning as they go. But in all of these examples, there are key moments you can go back and say, that was a mistake. It would just be nice to see someone compile all of that into a a master list of lessons learned for projects like this. Open source projects need a business model. And it seems that this business model is just not working anymore. And so either we're going to have to learn the lessons, as you say, and find some new business models, or we're just not going to have any more big open source projects like this appearing which I don't think will happen. I think they will find new business models, but I just can't think of what they will be. Let me tell you about my friend, the subscription-based service, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but maybe, actually. Um, This last story we have in the show notes, I I can't wrap my head around it. When When you figure in like Fuchsia and everything else going on with Chrome OS, I don't know where this next story fits. This is the fact that in the recently released Android Q beta you could toggle on a desktop mode. Yeah. And then uh, uh, that also turns on the freeform multi-window mode. You get a status navigation bar at the bottom of the screen. You can set a custom wallpaper. I mean, it's like uh, uh, like a, a baby Chrome OS desktop. Well, Google is always one to hedge its bets, right? How many chat applications have they had over the years, for example? And they often run concurrently before they finally kill it. And... This is just their hedge, isn't it? They've basically got three OSs now, two of which are potential desktop operating systems. We don't know what's going to happen with Fuchsia. It could end up being the basis of a desktop OS or a mobile OS or, I think, more likely IoT stuff. But they've also got Android things. I mean, it's just the typical Google mess, isn't it? I think that when you get enough talented people in enough different departments, they're going to sort of compete internally which is probably actually better for the final product that wins out. That is likely what it is. It just has my mind spinning. Uh, It makes me question the looming Fuchsia release. It it makes me suspect perhaps Android's going to be around in many forms much longer. It also has me wondering if perhaps Android becomes their partner's operating system and Fuchsia is Google's operating system, sort of like they're doing right now on the Google Home. Google Home uses the Chromecast operating system. But if you're Lenovo or another vendor like JBL that's making a smart Google Assistant display, well, then you get Android of things. You don't get the same OS Google's using. Maybe we're going to see this kind of thing with Android and Chrome OS and Fuchsia. Who knows? Or, or, or most likely, it's just what you say, Joe. It's a bunch of talented people in different areas, and they're all just kind of hashing it out, and uh, you know, the fittest wins. But it is fascinating to see this because it's baked right into Android Q. If you go out and get the betas right now on a Pixel 3 device, you flip a few settings that we have linked in the show notes, and you can use this today. You can hook your Pixel up to a HDMI display, get yourself a Bluetooth keyboard and mouse, and you've got a convergent Android-based desktop right now. Well, this is something they've been working on for an awfully long time. 
The freeform Windows have been around since Android 7, and Android Q, of course, is the 10th version. So we're kind of three iterations along. So it feels like this has just been in the works for forever. So maybe once they'd committed to it, they just kept rolling on with it and didn't tell that department to knock it off. Uh, who knows, really? Who knows how the internals of Google works? But to me, it seems that this competition idea is the most likely explanation for it. That's how I would run a company if I had all the money in the world like Google does. Because you're just going to get better products as a result of that. If people in your own company are competing against each other in a friendly way where they can still help each other as well, it, it's got to be good for innovation. It's like the whole open source thing, Gnome versus Plasma. It's not really a competition, is it? And they do help each other out where they can and they have a good relationship, but it does ultimately drive innovation forward for both of them. Yeah, that makes sense. It seems uh, it seems expensive, uh, but it, it makes sense and um, kind of makes me want Android Q. I kind of want, want that update on my Pixel 3 and I want to try it out. And you remember one of the other things we've talked about that they're working on is the ability to run multiple applications side by side at the same time. Traditionally, one of the applications pauses, whichever application isn't in focus pauses. Uh, and one of the features they're also working on is that you can have multiple applications running same time without pausing. That all seems like an all's playing into using Android as a desktop. I wonder if we'll actually see this matched up with a hardware device, a laptop type device, you know, a Chromebook running Android. Where does this go? Um, who knows, Joe? Maybe it starts with foldables. Well, the logical place for this feature would be on a tablet with a keyboard and touchpad attachment. So I wouldn't be at all surprised to see one of those come out fairly soon with this feature being touted as the, the reason to buy it. Another hot prediction here on the Linux Action News program, and you might be right. Uh, go check the show notes this week, either in your podcast player or at linuxactionnews.com slash 97. There's a few extra links in there for additional information and details about some of the stories we covered this week. And be sure to go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And as you probably know, Linux Fest Northwest is nearly here, April 26th through the 28th, 2019, at the Bellingham Technical College in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. It's coming soon, and we've launched a Telegram group to organize. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash linuxfest to get in that group. Even if you're not going, just come join, contribute positively to the conversation. I'm going to be giving away stickers and other swag to that Telegram group, even if you're not going to be at Linux Fest jupiterbroadcasting.com slash linuxfest get in there hang out with some great linux users and win free swag we'll be back next monday with our weekly take on the latest linux and open source news i'm at chris las i'm at joe resenton thank you for joining us and we will see you next week see you later